chapter, after a month or so, we, in chapter 3, we move on to chapter 4. And in this chapter, the Lord ministers to a variety of people, quite a few people, sinful Samaritan woman and his own disciples, sinful disciples, and many Samaritans in a town. He just stayed a couple of days, and a nobleman in his household at the end of the chapter. And the question would be, what, what did all these people have in common? And that would be, at some point, they developed a, a, some sense of belief in who Jesus was. On different levels, but some sense of belief in who Jesus was. And we think these stories that we look at in chapter 4 are about these people that I just mentioned in fact, this week, I, I told a couple of people I was preaching the story of the woman at the well. But truly, that's not what John is telling us. He's not telling us about the woman in the well from the very beginning of John. In the beginning was the Word. In the be- very beginning of this uh, gospel of John... He has been telling us that Jesus is the Messiah. This is not a story about the woman at the well. This is another story about Jesus being our Savior. The Savior of the world. Of course, John had another side issue that um, our purpose for uh, writing this gospel and showing his readers the, the various kinds and classes of people that Jesus came to save. Um, in in, in uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone. Remember, we talked about that. What does everyone mean? Everyone means not just the Jews. And then in John 3:16 we talk about what, what for God so loved the world what does the world mean it's he doesn't love just the Jews in that context that John was writing years after all of this took place he's writing to gentiles and to women and to children all ages not just the Jewish men and so this, the, 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 the key to all this is that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Savior. That's what um, John wrote in chapter 20. He reminded us of why he wrote all of this. But then he came, we see, and John teaches us this throughout the book also for the world, for all kinds of people, for everyone. I got a quick story here. This is a transcript. This is an actual radio conversation of a U.S. naval ship with Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. And the uh, radio conversation was released by the Chief of Naval Operations in October, October 10th 
1995. First, the Americans. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadians. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans. This is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians. No, I say again, you divert your course. Americans. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We're accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees. That's one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. Your call. Sorry, Navy guys. You know, who you think you are is important, like the U.S. But who you really are is even more important, like a lighthouse. Who you think you are, like Nicodemus, chapter 3, he was an important man. Who you really are is even more important. He was lost. And then sometimes there's the Samaritan woman we'll see soon. Think of themselves so low. Who they think of themselves, that's important. In such a low, in, in such a low state. They can't even realize that they actually have access to everything that God offers, just like Nicodemus, the rich religious man. And many will use this, the first part of this chapter, maybe all of this chapter, some evangelistic message. Get an evangelistic message out of it. And many people do. And, and it might even be helpful that we take some evangelistic message out of this. But this is more than just an evangelistic message that many people focus on. This, like I said, is John showing us that Jesus is the Savior. And in the organization of of this particular gospel, um, this is the second of... John records some discourses that Jesus has uh, throughout the gospel. And this is the second of the Lord's discourses, conversations with people. The first being that, uh, that uh, new birth discussion that he had with Nicodemus in chapter 3. So let's look at this through verse 26, which we won't get. That, 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 this is the text for today and next Sunday. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing 
more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Hallelujah. Jesus didn't say hallelujah, I did. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water. So that I will not be thirsty again. I have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have five husbands. She's a busy lady, isn't she? And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and now is here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He the Word of God. We're just going to take the first few verses today and talk about this departure away from where he is. We'll talk about the location of where he goes to and briefly talk about this encounter that he has. Uh, The details of that encounter we'll talk about next week. First, the departure. You know, these first three verses in the Greek, and there's no punctuation, so these first three verses in the Greek, just one long sentence. 
It's hard to put it together, though, although the New American Standard and the ESV have put it together most literally and most readably as well. This second interview that Jesus has with another person. And the circumstances of, of Jesus' departure northward from Judea toward Galilee are significant. You might not think so. Okay, he left. Let's get to where he talks with the lady. He's already presented himself uh, as the Messiah by both the proclaimed Word of God and also by signs and miracles. In chapter 2, we see turning the water into wine at the wedding feast. He proclaims who he is as a result of that. He, uh, he, uh, the reception he received uh, reveals clearly that the religious people failed to see who he really is. Um, he shows again the purpose of his ministry in uh, in chapter the end of chapter two into chapter three by explaining to Nicodemus that you must be born again and the only way that can happen is through me. He's already moved in in, um, chapter 3, verse uh, 22. Look at that. Go back a chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. He remained there with them and was baptized. So he's already made one move. In Jerusalem, things already getting, uh, you know, maybe a little heated. Um, And uh, so he moves into Judea uh, there. Um, And he attracts an increasingly larger following than John the Baptist. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, this is chapter 3, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he's baptizing and everybody's going with him what's with it and so see people are already some are already recognizing who he is some are threatened by it already so then he has to move on these retreats where Jesus retreats to another area we'll see those over a three-year period, if you were to look at all the Gospels, there's one, two, three, four. There are five of them we see in the Gospels where, uh, because of circumstances, Jesus moves to another area. And the, the main reason this is happening, Jesus has to move because it's not time for a confrontation that would lead to his death. And so he moves on. And this particular retreat begins that great Galilean ministry that we'll see uh, in the life of Jesus. We see in, in, in Luke 9. We'll, we'll see it actually, this Galilean ministry, until in Luke 9:51 he says he's determined to go to Jerusalem. And in Mark 10 where he goes to give his life as a ransom for many. And so his early ministry that we've seen from, from uh, John, after the prologue, John 1, verse 19, 
all the way up through the end of this chapter. This, uh, that none of this, these first four chapters, they're not in the, synop- the synoptic gospels. All that we study in these first four chapters, you don't see in the synoptic gospels. In fact, all of this takes place before the synoptics even begin, for the most part. We have the birth narrative and those sorts of things. This part of ministry takes place before his ministry begins in the synoptics. We we don't even see the formal call of the twelve disciples as well here. He showed you we, we talked about it earlier in earlier chapters where he he called a couple of the uh, a few of the disciples uh, to himself and it's important to see how all these the four gospels come together in this we we see in chapter 1 uh in Bethany beyond the Jordan John talks to us about Jesus calling Andrew and then calling John and then calling Peter and then calling Philip and then calling Nathaniel, whom we think is Bartholomew. And, but the emphasis there is that they believe. The emphasis there, here's the Messiah. You believe in, in Him. There's no formal calling. But then secondly, and later on, we see in Mark 1, He calls the disciples all in Galilee to this special assignment that He has for them to be disciples or are learners. That's what disciples mean, learners. And then in Mark chapter 3, we really see the official call of the twelve disciples to be the disciples of Jesus Christ. At this point here, when we get to chapter 4 in, um, in the Gospel of John... Um, John's already been arrested by Herod Antipas. Well, John, John didn't, for some reason, didn't take to the immorality of Herod. He condemned his immoral lifestyle as a ruler. He condemned his adulterous relationship with Herodias, who was not... <laughs> If you just want to read a soap opera, you find just the life of Herod's family. That was a crazy bunch. So Herod Antipas is having an adulterous relationship with his sister-in-law, who is also his niece. And that's just the beginning of that story. And John attacks that immorality. And so when we get to John 4, he's already in prison. And here at the beginning of this chapter, with the sudden prominence of Jesus, which is evidenced by the growth of those who are following Him, it caused the Pharisees to take notice of Him, maybe even to become a bit uncomfortable with what is going on. And apparently Jesus heard about it, or he learned about it some way, or he just sensed it in his spirit. Learning of the fact that John has already been imprisoned, which we see in Matthew chapter 4.
Plus, he, he doesn't seem to be so connected to these multitudes that are being uh, baptized. And so that's what leads him to this departure. Moving north. And since he was working on God's schedule anyway, he, he knew how his ministry was going to ultimately end. But until that appointed time, he had to live carefully. And so he withdraws until the appointed hour. He, what does he do? Leaves Judea. Heads toward Galilee. Then we see in verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize with only his disciples, John seems to go out of his way here, John uh, the Apostle, John the Evangelist, writing this. He seems to go out of his way to distinguish between John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist baptized with water. Jesus baptized with Spirit. John's already told us that. John 1.33 I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so just that little phrase there in verse 2, uh, is, is John just making very clear the difference in Jesus the Messiah and John the Baptist. And showing us that Jesus' Jesus' baptism of the Spirit had far greater significance than John baptizing with water. Although Jesus upholds water baptism... He doesn't want there to be any confusion. And it seems that um, Paul, the Apostle Paul had a similar opinion of this. 1 Corinthians 1. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did bath- baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Jesus not baptizing people shows us at least two things. First, I think it shows us that the person doing the baptizing is not really that significant. You fathers, when your children make a profession of faith, I'll give you the opportunity to come and baptize your children. That, 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 that's not significant. I think Jesus is teaching us in that. But there's a practical aspect to this, it seems, as well. And that is human nature. Can you imagine what would have happened if Jesus had baptized people, a whole nother level of Christianity would have been raised up. The Roman Catholic Church, you boy, they would have made the heyday they would have had with this. They would have probably developed another 
office that we would all, as Protestants, would be struggling with today. Another office of particular people who could trace their family's baptism all the way back to Jesus. Oh, my. What a mess that would have been if Jesus had baptized. You know, there is such a... This is just a side note because I wrote a paper about it in seminary. That Landmark Baptist. Have you heard of Landmark Baptist? Landmark Baptist supposedly trace their roots all the way back to Jesus. Friends, we Baptists didn't come from Jesus. Well, we came from Jesus, but you know what I mean. John Calvin said about all this, in order to inform us that baptism ought not to be estimated by the person of the minister, or who the minister is, but that its power depends entirely on its author in whose name and by whose authority it is conferred, Hence, we derive a remarkable consolation when we know that our baptism has no less efficacy to wash and renew us than if it had been given by the hand of the Son of God. Nor can it be doubted that so as long as we live in the world, he abstained from the outward administration of the sign for the express purpose of testifying to all ages that baptism loses nothing of its value when it is administered by a mortal man. So important. So Jesus has to leave in order to continue his ministry and and to keep the religious people out of the way. And it wasn't God's time for any confrontation. And then we have where he went to. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let let me show you the map. Uh, Is the map up there? Um, So he's in Jerusalem. He goes um, north of Jerusalem, outside in the Judean area. You see there's Judea and Samaria, and Galilee. Can you see that? Um, now, they don't, they don't have borders. They sort of bled into each other. Uh, they didn't have borders. Uh, but then uh, John tells us that Jesus went up to Sychar. That's the one circled in black. I think it's black. Um, and there's a question mark about that because we really don't know where that is. Jerome, the great... Uh, first century historian tells us that um, Sychar uh, is Shechem, the Old Testament city of Shechem. And there's a reason for that, because that's where Jacob was, that uh, Jacob's well was near Shechem. And somehow, somewhere along the way, the name changed to Sychar. Um, and Jesus, but he could have gone, you see the Jordan River just, just um, west of Perea? There, going all the, that was one way to travel up to the Galilean area. That was actually the better way to travel up to Galilee. You get to Sothopolis up there, which is if you've traveled to Israel, Sothopolis is Bet Shane now. You've seen the Roman ruins of Bet Shane. Have you been? How many of you have been there? 
Yeah, that's a few of you there. Um, yeah, um, Wendell Johnson sat on an old Roman commode in, in, in Bet Shane, and for a price, I've got a picture. Um, but it'll go to the building fund. Um, so, but they would, they would go up the river valley and in uh, Sothopolis, then they would make their way to the plains around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus chose to get to climb uh, the mountains and walk the ridge of the mountains up to Sychar. Much more difficult travel or way to travel that particular route. Why did he do that? Verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. I would say, no, he didn't. There were, uh, I guess you could go up the coast, um, but uh, uh, obviously that wasn't a common way uh, to travel. He could have gone another way, but he chose this way. And since he chose this way, it meant that he had to pass through Samaria. But I do think there's much more to it than that, don't you? You remember going through a trial? Uh, it doesn't even have to be a trial, just some circumstance in your life. Something happened that seemed strange or odd and you didn't quite understand it. And then as a result of the trial, whatever the circumstance it was, you had an opportunity for ministry after that. And then you look back and you say, oh, now I know why I went through that. Have you experienced that? Yeah. Of course you have. Back in the late 90s, I used to tell people that God brought me back to Charleston to teach at Charleston Southern University. That was while I was teaching at Charleston Southern. Then I realized that He got me to Charleston Southern so He could lead me to pastor this church. The only way he could get me, I would have never come back to Charleston to pastor a church. Prophet is without honor in his own country. Believe me, I know that. But he got me back to this city by teaching at that school. Well, I say all that to say that God's got a perfect plan. And he did for this woman, too. Jesus had to go to Samaria. He had an appointment. You know, I changed the music three times this week that we were going to sing. And I added that when trials come in the middle of the week because of stuff that was going on then. But because of stuff that went on this morning, I look back and say, oh, that's why I chose that song. It was for me, it wasn't for you. But that posed a unique problem. Rabbis didn't go through Samaria. I'm sure you've heard me this explained over and over and over again, but let me just briefly reflect on what's taking place in Samaria. The, uh, the Samaritans 
were a mixed race. They were part Jewish and part Gentile, and or part Hebrew and part Gentile. And, and this grew out of uh, uh, back in 727 B.C. Uh, when the Assyrians came and, and uh, took into captivity the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. And then the Assyrians sent their own people back to that area to repopulate that area. But there was a remnant of Jews still there. And so they intermarried became a mixed race of people in Samaria. Now, there's a town in Samaria, in the region of Samaria. There's a town called Samaria as well. And you don't get confused with that. So some 30,000 Israelites are taken into captivity, but there's a remnant left, and the Assyrians come to repopulate and create this mixed race of people. They established their own temple. That's what she talks about, this mountain. It's Mount Gerizim. And that that mountain is dedicated to the god Jupiter. The Samaritans are prohibited from going to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the worship. And they rewrote certain parts. The only part of the Hebrew Bible they really believed was the Pentateuch. And they even rewrote parts of that under persecution, they rejected their own Jewish heritage, and they were rejected by the Jews because of their genealogy and that genealogy just fanned the fires of prejudice it was It was so intense that Pharisees would pray that no Samaritan would be raised in the resurrection. That their dislike for the Samaritans uh, was, was, was so great that they, they would use... That if you wanted to call somebody a name, you'd call them a Samaritan. Well, they did that in John 8... They called Jesus one. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? And so because he's on this divinely appointed schedule, it's necessary that he goes to Samaria. Because he's going to meet a woman there. He's going to, and she's going to be led to some level of belief. I'm not really sure about all of that. We'll talk about that next week. But because of his encounter with this woman, he's going to have some impact on an entire city, entire village. He chose to go to this area so that he can reach the despised people of this particular region As the Savior of the world, He came to seek and to save the lost. He came, as Luke tells us in Luke 19, to save the despised and the outcast. And yet for all the discrepancies between Jerusalem and Samaria, there was one truth that they held in common, and that is they were all looking for the Messiah. 
Now, not surprisingly, the Samaritans expected that this Christ would finally convert all the nations to Samaritanism. That's what he'd do. That's perverted religion that comes out of Jerusalem was not important to them. So Jesus was going to come as Messiah. Everybody was waiting for the Messiah to come. That's the only thing they had in common. And then Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied as he was from so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well. Well, there's some significance to this well is also. He wrestled with God at Peniel. He'd become reconciled to Esau. Um, he settled in Shechem. We believe that's the area where he purchased and erected an altar. Joseph then inherited that site and was buried there. Remember, they carried Joseph back to be buried there. Jacob is believed to have dug a well in this location. And it, 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 if, if it's true, now there are a lot of places in Israel where they say this happened and this happened and you start laughing after a while. No, that couldn't have happened there. But this is one of really the most reliable historical sites, Jacob's Well. But there's a wonderful thing that dawned on me this week looking at this passage. Jacob, you remember back in uh, Genesis 32, I think, um, Jacob wrestles with, the Bible says, the Lord, or an angel of the Lord. That's when he had his hip broken or put out a joint and, and, and he's wrestling with God. And, and, and many reliable theologians believe there's a theophany in some sense and, and that is that he's actually wrestling with Christ. Jacob is wrestling with Christ before he digs this well. And the person he wrestled with that night, 2,000 years later, is sitting on the wall of that well. Hmm. And he's weary. So interesting. John's already told us, and the word was God. The one who created the universe. The one who possesses all the attributes of God Himself. All the attributes of deity, omniscience, omnipotence, and on and on and on. He got thirsty. Experienced pain and hunger. He was truly human. 
He wasn't pretending to be tired. He wasn't pretending to be weary. He was actually tired in order that he might be better prepared to experience the sympathy and the compassion that he was going to have to give to us. He took on him our weaknesses. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It dawned on me this week, too, that we think of him taking on sin on the cross, but Jesus struggled with the effects of sin throughout his life as well, just because he was here. He had to work. <laughs> work. That's one of the effects of sin. So on and on through his life, he struggled with the effect of sin in the world, not just on the cross. So he's weary and hungry and thirsty. So John's not only presenting Jesus as the Son of God, but he's also presenting Jesus as true man who entered into all the normal experiences of life. He entered into all the normal experiences, the writer of Hebrews says, of our lives. What we're experiencing, what we're going through. He took on our weaknesses so that he might identify with those struggles and those trials that we sang about. Matthew Henry said, We have here our Lord Jesus under the common fatigue of travelers. Thus we see that he was truly a man. Toil came in with sin. Therefore Christ, having made himself a curse for us, submitted to it. Also he was a poor man and went all his journeys on foot. Being wearied, he sat thus on the well. He had no couch to rest upon. He sat thus as people wearied with traveling sit. Surely we ought readily to submit to be like the Son of God in such things as these. Then we have that encounter. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. This is the longest conversation recorded in Scripture of Jesus having with a woman. He's no respecter of persons. He counsels a Jewish uh, religious leader high up in authority. And now he's going to witness to an immoral woman with no name. Normally, women would come around sunset because it was cooler. They would come, draw water, and possibly even have a little social gathering, talking to each other. No Facebook. But this woman's coming in the middle of the day probably to avoid the looks of disapproval, probably to avoid all that talk. 
for her shameful and immoral life. And there's several reasons why Jesus couldn't talk to her, shouldn't talk to her. He was a man. She was a woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. But this conversation is a wonderful picture of what we call prevenient grace. This is a wonderful picture of the wooing of God. This is a wonderful picture of the pursuit of a loving God who through circumstances toward some significant appointment that is in His plan with an unbeliever. God is actually showing the affections that He has for this particular woman. And Jesus is just a great picture of prevenient grace in her life. And there's a great contrast here between these these two discourses that I talked about at the beginning. This last chapter, we see this man, Nicodemus. First person that John introduces to show the need that men and women have of the Messiah. And he provides a context in which Jesus explains what it is that he offers them. You must be born again. In this context, you must be given living water. The end of chapter 2, John wrote of the initial response of some men to Jesus. John 2, 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. And in the very next verse, John 3, verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Obviously, John is presenting Nicodemus as the first example of those that Jesus knew. And he knew what was in them. And he knew what they needed. But Nicodemus wasn't the only one that needed the gospel. Now there's this woman. For God so loved the world, not just Jewish Orthodox Jews, the world. Men, women, Gentiles, Jews, children, slaves, free. For God so loved the world. There's quite a contrast between these two. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She belonged to no religious party. Nicodemus was a politician. Um, She didn't have any status at all. Nicodemus was a scholar. She was uneducated. Nicodemus was highly moral. She was immoral. Nicodemus had a name. She's nameless. He was a man. She was a woman. He came at night to protect his reputation. She came at noon probably because of her bad reputation. Nicodemus came seeking him. The woman is being sought out by Jesus. James Boyce calls this a great contrast. 
Yet the point of the story is that both the man and the woman needed the gospel and were welcome to it. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish. Guess I need to stop. In case you don't know, our church houses a public charter school in the back building. You've seen the wheelchairs and things of children with severe multiple needs. My favorite friend back there in the three or four years they've been here is Brianna. She was the first PACE student I met. I can't see or hear or reason. Anthony, can she eat? She might be fed with a tube. I'm not sure. And compared to Brianna, there's Frank. He's a pastor. He's a preacher. Leading the church. He's a father. He's a husband. Just Frank is so busy serving the Lord. He's awesome. In his own eyes. And I go back there a couple times a week just to check on the kids because it helps put things in perspective for me. Because for all I do for the Lord, God's love for me is no different than any one of those children that can't do anything for Him. Listen, I want you to know, if you never do your devotions again, if you never ever read the Bible again, if you never witness to another soul again, it will not change God's love for you. It is grace alone. And in the same way, we have the story of the woman directly in contrast with the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He knows he's from God. It's had some idea that he's from God. And yet Nicodemus needs salvation. And well, the woman has no clue who he is. In fact, she probably thought Jesus was hitting on her. Maybe he heard He's just another guy, and she knew guys. She needed a new life just like Nicodemus. The same fundamental issue we had in chapter 3, we also have in chapter 4. And if the woman at the well is to come to saving faith, she's going to change her course. And if Nicodemus is to come to saving faith, he's going to change his course. Both Nicodemus and this woman must decide what to do with what Jesus has told them. And ultimately, what happens is based on what they believe about Jesus Christ. 
to Nicodemus. Jesus is an inspiring person. Perhaps even an inspired teacher. The woman at the well comes to see Jesus much more than this. And we'll see that next week. And it's not an accident that John put these two stories side by side. At the beginning of his gospel. And it's not an accident as we see what takes place in verse 42 of chapter 4. They said to the woman, this is the town people. It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's the point of it all. The one thing that Nicodemus and this woman had in common was the only thing that mattered. empty spiritually, lost and bound for an eternity in hell unless God intervenes. And what does lost mean? I looked it up. Dictionary. Unable to find one's way. But lost in the Bible means even more than that, Scripture teaches us. You can add to that the deliberate waywardness, deliberate rebellion. That's the Bible's picture of lostness. One who's unable to find their way, but have made a conscious decision to walk away. Paul tells us about that in Romans 3.12. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All have turned aside, consciously turned from Him. Turned aside means lost as a result of some active, willful decision to walk away from God and walk in the direction that you choose. We've willfully abandoned the way to Christ. Isaiah 53 All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. And that's what the Messiah did for you. So let me ask you a question. What do you need to do when you're lost? Well, the answer is you need to find your way back. The second question is, what do you need if you're unable to find your way back? The answer is you need a Savior. John's showing us through Nicodemus, Samaritan woman, throughout his gospel. We need a Savior. Turn to Him today. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a song, Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee. I would hope we could sing that and mean it.
sing it from our hearts. Consecrate our lives again, Father, for your glory and your purpose. Take us and mold us and shape us and move us from where we are to where you want us to be. And Lord, for the one here today who has not turned to you in faith, I pray they will today. Give us boldness by your Spirit to walk to you, to repent and to believe. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.